could it be that the problem that the reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar is at risk because of the uh, because of China introducing their CBDC and how that may, potentially that could undermine the status of the U.S. dollar? That's one of the arguments that that he's hearing is that okay, we need to have a CBDC in the U.S. since China has one. We need to compete with them on that level, or or the, or some or there or the world might start using the Chinese CBDC, yeah. right? And the and the dollar will be its status will be threatened. And he's got a great response to this. And he says, I see no reason to expect that the world will flock to a Chinese CBDC or any other. Why would non-Chinese firms suddenly desire to have all their financial transactions monitored by the Chinese government? And that really, that puts a, a fine point on it. This is any, any nation that introduces a, a central bank digital currency is going to have all the transactions in that currency capable of being monitored by their government. Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan who are experts in their field. Today's topic is called Snowden Says. We hope you enjoy episode 15 of Specific Knowledge. All right, guys, episode 15, Snowden Says. Welcome. How are you doing, Lucas and Ryan? I'm doing good, Devin. Uh, we've been having some great weather and been busy with Lucas working on videos for Wise Beyond Bitcoin, hanging out with the family, and just uh, trying to keep up to date with all the crazy goings on in the crypto space. Uh, so yeah, that's that's yeah. essentially what I've been doing. How about how about you guys? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. It's good to see you guys as always. Yep, Ryan and I have been having a blast, pumping out stuff and making progress. I'm excited to take wise beyond bitcoin with ryan to the next level um technical videos and we're doing a lot of uh, short instructionals but uh, i'm also excited about today's topic and to hang out with you guys because ryan found a couple of really really awesome articles that he shared and uh, i'm excited to, to get into it like i am every week with you guys yeah same uh, i know lucas you and i are both in colorado right now and uh in the theme with today's theme it, we are a little <laughs> snowed in uh it's yeah. uh snowing quite a bit in colorado which is pretty exciting and uh hopefully be able to hit the slopes probably not enough snow for the base but uh yeah it's pretty cool but yeah moving on uh yeah of course ryan bringing the bringing the powerhouse of articles every week uh to, to our doorstep so that we can digest them and go over them over air and uh this week you have well it started with one article it was edward snowden uh, discussing CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies. And it's a cautionary tale, right? Uh, but it was actually written Dude. in reaction to a speech from Governor Christopher Waller. Uh, and the, the article itself, or the speech itself, sorry, is called CBDC, A Solution in Search of a Problem. And I think before we start with that, we should probably discuss the difference between commercial bank money and central bank money because that's going to be important to define before we get into this. So 
if that sounds good to you guys, take it away. All right. I guess I'll, I'll field that one. Uh, so yeah, the, what's the difference between commercial bank money and uh, central bank money? Well, central bank money includes the, the physical cash uh, paper dollars that we have, we hold, that we spend. And those are liabilities of the Federal Reserve or the central bank. The other liabilities they have are the accounts that other that commercial banks hold at the Fed. Those are the that's their reserves. So um, so you have the physical paper money plus whatever bank reserves are held at the Fed. That's that's central bank money, and that money is um, the 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 reserve accounts are just between the Fed and the banks, the commercial banks. And the, the paper money is, uh, is, of course, circulates publicly and it's, and it's used widely. Now, the commercial bank money is digital in, in its nature. It's the checking accounts, the savings accounts, the money market funds, and all of the different balances on ledgers of commercial banks. And this commercial bank money is pegged one-to-one with the Federal Reserve uh, notes, the, the paper money. So there's a a one-to-one peg between the paper dollar and the commercial digital bank balances. And so essentially the commercial banking sector serves the, um, the private market, the individuals, the companies that, that make up the economy and the private or in the federal reserve money, it's the central bank money. That's for, that's essentially a clearing house for banks. And that's the difference. So the, the commercial banks are for the population at large and the federal reserve is a, the banker's bank, essentially, is the way to think of it. And so there's a pretty big uh, difference between these two worlds. And, the, and so the, one of the key questions that we're looking at in this, in this discussion is, what happens to the commercial banking system if the Federal Reserve were to move into its neighborhood and start dealing directly with the public and, and with a digital currency of its own, a central bank digital currency, or a CBDC for short? What, what are the implications for that? Uh, what, what does that mean for commercial banking? And what happens to the broader economy? That's, that's essentially the theme here today. So going forward, uh, do you guys have any, any thoughts about that? Or I can, we can move on if that's uh, adequately, adequately defined? Yeah, no, I thought you described, you defined it perfectly. I was, I was eating it up. I'm ready, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> All right. Cool. Let's so get let's, it. Let's jump into, uh, first, let's start, I guess let's start with the beginning with the speech that Governor Christopher Waller gave to the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank in Washington. So he gave a speech in August of this year, and the speech, the title, uh, uh, Central Bank Digital Currency, A Solution in Search of a Problem, that, the title is perfect because that's the theme here of his speech. He, the point he, he starts off with is that government intervention or government pro- producing of a, of, a, of a certain kind of a good it should really be limited to those kinds of things that the market fails to produce. So in economics, we call those market failures. And an example of a market failure would might be something like uh, public education, or another one might be clean air, or you might also think about um, the, provi- the, the, uh, the provision of, of a stable legal system and a court system to, to produce uh, you know, judgments about disputes. Now there's debates about whether or not those are truly market failures or whether or not the market will produce those outcomes or not. But that's something we don't wanna get into here. We're just gonna work off the, the general idea of a market failure. And that's just a, a, certain sec, a certain set of services or goods that the market for whatever reason won't produce or won't produce enough of 
according to what we what what an economist or a, or a um a politician would deem to be an adequate amount so the the thinking is is that we should only have government producing uh, services or goods when the market won't produce them on its own when in a market failure situation so uh, this governor at the his speech he he walks through the various arguments for central bank digital currencies that are tied to market failures and he so an example of this would be it would be a market failure say if if there was a big uh, profit margin in in commercial banking between just like you know like a check like say you want to give money, send money to somebody and who has a different bank you write a check if there was some big percentage of that check that went to the commercial bank just for clearing that 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 uh, transaction and and if those transactions were were piling up because people couldn't afford them essentially and there was this failure going on then you could say oh okay well maybe the central bank needs to issue a digital currency so that people can can transact and can you know write checks or, or send money here to there cheaper because because there's not because this this service is not available right but he he explains cl clearly that's not the case that it's easy to send money move to move money around in the commercial banking system and that it's pretty cheap to do it and that they continue to innovate that's that's the key is that the commercial banking system is continuing to innovate all the time and to make to move money faster. He even gives examples of, of uh, protocols that are being uh, devised right now to do that. And he, he goes through a few different examples of other arguments that are tied to market failures. Uh, slowness of payments um, is an example. Um, bringing the unbanked into a banking uh, uh, system is another example he gives. And he goes through all these and suggests that the private sector is not failing to meet these needs that it's, it's actually innovating and doing so pretty pretty quickly in an, in an impressive way so essentially what he says is that this central bank digital currency is a solution in search of a problem that they're that it's not solving a problem and that it's the argument for it has to be on on another ground it wouldn't be a market mm -hmm. failure argument well yeah it might be a it's solving a problem for people at the top it's, it's keeping them in power and it's giving them a, a tool to, as you guys have both pointed out in previous podcast episodes, it's giving them an Orwellian tool to create greater power grip on, on society mm -hmm. and on monetary systems. On, I mean, you name it, go on and on and on. So right. you're right. No, no, no. It's not a market need. There, there's, no mar there's no issue in the market. And, and crypto is handling it. DeFi is handling it. You know, private methods are, are handling this and in, into a much much more innovative much more efficient degree i think we are all in agreement that he is spot on um yes yeah and, and so he, he gives merit he gives merit to the snowden article because the snowden article yep. that uh, ryan pulled up is, is it's the why you know it's it's the uh it's the reasoning it, it shows if you look at the history of money and and the and those who've had the power to print or to to depreciate and to benefit themselves that is where you can see the uh, the potential the purpose of a cbdc it is the ultimate control over money it, it's it's the, the ultimate orwellian tool because of i know ryan can get into this even more but the impact that uh, putting a, a central bank in charge, removing commercial banks in the role that they play and the impact that that will have on, on markets. This is, the, 
there's a passage that highlights what you're saying. What yeah. both, both of you guys are saying here. So in, in the Waller speech, he says he's, he's now addressing another argument for the central bank digital currency. And, and he says that, could it be that the problem that the reserve currency status of the US dollar is at risk because of, the, uh, because of China introducing their CBDC and how that may, potentially that could undermine the status of the US dollar? That's one of the arguments that, that he's hearing is that, okay, we need to have a CBDC in the US since China has one. We need to compete with them on that level or or the, or some or there or the world might start using the Chinese CBDC. Yeah. Right. And the and the dollar will be its status will be threatened. And he's got a great response to this. And he says, I see no reason to expect that the world will flock to a Chinese CBDC or any other. Why would non Chinese firms suddenly desire to have all their financial transactions monitored by the Chinese government? And that really that puts a, a fine point on it. This is any any nation that introduces a, a central bank digital currency is going to have all the transactions in that currency capable of being monitored by their government. So if if China's uh, in, in rolling that out, how is you know why why is that going to be so attractive? It, if anything, it, it won't. No, it's not. It's it's a financial cold war, an economic cold war we're in, and they have the this generation's version of nuclear bombs and we need that too right we need to have the same power the semblance of power as they do but not considering what it actually means right right that's a good point let's look at the difference between a cbdc and a bitcoin a blockchain what what that stands the value potential that or a stable coin right like a, a blockchain stable coin or even a decentralized block, blockchain stablecoin. What what makes um, the blockchain so innovative and, and such a huge uh, value proposition for humanity is that we have a, a, a ledger system, we have a unit of account, we have this that cannot be corrupted, cannot be perverted, cannot be changed from one minute to the next based upon uh, political whim. Now let's go look at a CBDC. Because a CBDC is ultimately the most centralized ledger it's completely centralized you have a group that can now say we're going to make negative interest rates we're going to take money from your wallet because you owe us this much we're going to shut up your wallet it's the most orwellian control over resources and money so to speak and uh you know we talk about that lord acton quote absolute power corrupts absolutely it's it's uh it, it, for me, well, it I opens see it, the door to some really perverse incentives. It opens yeah. the door to perverse incentives. For there sure. was a, a Snowden has a, a little line where someone, it, it, the instance or the, the situation he talks about is that someone is diagnosed with being pre diabetic. And now, because their wallet is attached to where, where their privacy of their medical, everything on blockchain, right, is stored, is attached to their doctor. Now, their doctor can shut them off from buying candy. And what if they want to buy candy for their grandchild? Now they can't. Now that's that's just yes. the tip of the iceberg, right? And it also uh, has implications for the for with which with the ease with which uh, civil asset forfeiture could be accomplished, right? You oh, say let's you get have, into that. Yeah, yeah, that. that's a that's a big one, right? So say you someone you know you sell say you have a garage sale and you and you sell a uh, your kid's bike to some random stranger, and they transfer some CBDC into your wallet, and lo and behold that that digital asset has a history of being used in some criminal uh, transaction, whether it was a drug deal or whatever. And so it's deemed that it's, it, you're, you're not a criminal, but the assets uh, is, is, is being, the asset itself is, is being um, deemed illegal. 
So it's, it can be see, it'd be easy to seize it. Right. Cause you've got, like Lucas was saying, you have a centralized ledger. So everybody's wallet, everybody's assets are plugged into a centralized system. And it's really no different than having a, an account with bank of America at that point. The difference is, is that the account would be ran by the government and not a private entity. And yeah, you can, you can draw the um, implications you want from that. Another great point from the Waller article, we talk about uh, the differences between the CBDC central bank digital currency and its highly centralized nature. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was great how Waller pointed out um, how it's a, a, a security weakness. I mean, it's uh, when you have a centralized digital currency, all your ledgers on one server, a group of servers, now you have a point of attack. You have a, a, a place, a threat, a security threat. And it's funny, what's ironic is that when you put a CBDC next to a stable coin, a decentralized blockchain, Bitcoin, something like that, that's what that's what makes them separate because what, what, right. what is so great about Bitcoin or these decentralized ledgers is that there is no central point of attack. That is why Bitcoin blockchain has grown in value over the last decade plus is because it's this innovative way of storing information that there's no central point of attack and people can't just change the algorithm willy nilly. And, and CBDCs are the exact opposite. There's That's a right. central point of attack and they could be changed willy-nilly. It's like the regulators and the planners looked at the new digital crypto space, uh, the distributed ledger space and thought, wow, this is, you know, this is really shining a light on all the th problems that are wrong with the centralized system that we guys, have, we've been, ran, you know, we've been in charge of. So let's just double down on all those flaws <laughs> and make something that's just a thousand times more, more Orwellian than what we had, than what we had before, right? <laughs> let's just double down. But um, I want to talk, circle back around to something Lucas said earlier, because it, it was important and we should explain it fully. Um, the potential this has for negative interest rates. Um, in Europe, I believe Cyprus is in one nation. Um, Belgium, I believe, is another. I could be wrong. So if I'm wrong, then you know, don't, don't hold it against me. But there's EU nations that are, are already flirted with, with negative interest rates. And one of the ways they they've accomplished this was they've had to first ban physical cash. So they, they go to a, they removed from circulation the large denomination bills, and then got people used to a cashless society. And at that point, they could roll out negative interest rates, which basically means that every year or how you know however it's com computed, but every so often your account would just shrink by a certain percentage your balance, and that's and that's so instead of you know, earning money for a saving, you'd be losing money for a saving. And the idea there is to get people to spend their money, which generates demand and creates economic activity, produces more tax revenue for the government, and, you know, boosts GDP in general, just, you know, spending can, can increase economic activity and make, make people, you know, increase, in, increase incomes and growth, right? So the idea is to kind of nudge people to do that and get the economy going. But the key here is that it's not possible without um, it's not possible in a world where there's paper money because people won't tolerate losing their balance by a certain ratio. They're just going to, they'll just say, okay, well, instead of leaving my money at the bank, I'm just going to pull it out and hold it in cash. And then I'll have no, no, uh, no haircut or no negative interest rate applied because you can't, how are you going to tax? How are you going to take interest rate out of some cash that someone's holding? You know, it really wouldn't work. First of all, you wouldn't know, right? The knowledge question. 
So what we need to consider here is that what, what, what does central bank digital currencies mean for policy options going forward? And what does it make possible? Because, and I think negative interest rates is one of the things that makes possible. And you might wonder, well, why would, why would there be a desire for negative interest rates? I mean, well, I can get the fact that it gets people to spend money and that, that is allegedly good for the economy, at least in the short term. But what's the, what's the ultimate draw for this? Why do the powers that be have this in their, in their sights? Well, the answer is it's, it makes debt easier to pay. It's actually, it's, it's a way to reduce the debt, the, the debt burden. And governments around the world, including the United States government, have massive amounts of debt. And debt service, the, the yearly amount of interest that goes to service the debt, is, is going to continue to be a larger part of the budget. And as that grows, there's less money to pay out for things like roads or or education or um, welfare or whatever. So reducing the amount of interest that gets spent every year on the debt is a big, you know, it's a big deal. That's And that's why we've seen such low interest rates over the last 10, 15 years. It's about making those debts easier to service, both public and private. So, the, and, and as that process shows no sign of, of changing, we're, we're, we're raising debt limits, you know, we're, we're increasing the supply of money all the time at a historic rate. Debt and debt and uh, private public debts, you know, are off the charts. So there's no real reason to think that this this problem with debt service is just going to go away. If anything, it's going to get worse as time goes on, which means that we're going to need ever lower interest rates to sustain this. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that's really what's going on here. It's it's about having more control over the over people's monetary options and reducing a big one, which is paper money, which keeps a lid on negative interest rates and the potential to have them. Do you think, uh, sorry, a little sidebar, do you think this all started with Milton Friedman, who's a laissez-faire economist who I believe has invented the uh, tax hold? Yeah, you're right. The, yeah. uh, the tax credit, child tax credit? No. Yes. Yep. This goes to Milton. This goes beyond Milton Friedman. This goes back to Keynes. Keynes was mm -hmm. a, a proponent of euthanizing the renter, which means uh, reducing the return on capital. He wanted to see the return on capital to be zero. So he wanted to see zero interest rates. He thought that would be the best way to boost aggregate demand. He saw savings as a leakage, uh, investment as a leakage. So if there was a re zero return on investment, there'd be no investment. There'd be no savings. And uh, that's so he wanted to socialize those um, those functions under under some sort of a planning national planning infrastructure. So yeah, this some of this stuff goes back to Keynes, but then I think the theory. I don't know how much theory is driving this. I don't. I, I think it's more just prudent uh, calculation. Just thinking, okay, we got we have this much debt. This is what the interest rate is. And this is what we need it to be, and this is where we you know where we want it to be. It's, I think it's some, more along those lines instead of being some kind of complicated mm -hmm. theoretical um, story about you know the how great it would be to have zero interest rates. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the knowledge that it would take to get there and that the knowledge that could be secured by CBDCs for a central uh, arbiter or whatever you want to call that, a central being or, or group or government. The knowledge they would have, if we're getting back to Hayek, uh, which you know we often do, <laughs> uh, the knowledge they would have would allow others to, would allow this one group to benefit from the expense of everyone else. No. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess you, you're definitely, you're definitely giving a small group of people a window into all of the flows of money mm -hmm. and into all of our accounts. And so what that means for the revenues of certain businesses, you know, is that, could there be some insider trading happening there? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure that's possible. So, yeah, I think, um, but also there's something to think and consider is just the, the privacy is really where I, where my mind goes. Yeah. Let's go there. Cause yeah. Snowden, Snowden's here. So let's, let's, yeah, join let's him. talk about privacy. And I know Lucas will have a lot to talk about here, but, um, but the privacy aspect is that, well, it's the fact that people's uh, expenditures, that's, that's private information, right? That right now, that's something that banks have the option to, to, to kind of inform the IRS on if they feel there's some suspicious movement of money, like large amounts of money coming in that there's not, you know, clear, clear source on a lot of cash, you know, coming in, you know, they will, they will file, um, you know, voluntary reports on you as a customer, but that's, but what the, the goal of that is to catch, you know, criminals. What we're seeing now is a whole, basically the criminalization of everybody is everybody's now viewed as a criminal. There, there's a new regulation coming out that says that banks starting in 2024 have to report all in uh, all movements of cash out of accounts that have greater than $600 coming in or out of them in a year. So that that regulation that was applied to cash, cash app and PayPal and Venmo, <clears throat> it's not just going to be applied to those entities, it's going to be um, all, it looks like all financial intermediaries. So what we're talking about is a pen a financial panopticon where the entire economy is put under a, a lens, and there's an elite few who get to look through it and, and to see, see flows, see how much money people have. Now they're saying, and I know Lucas will have something to say about this, but they're saying that, well, don't worry, we're only going to use this new, uh, this new authority to tax or to go after the tax avoidance of the 1% of the, of the wealthy. We're not going to use the, you're not going to see audits, uh, changes in audits for people who are middle-class or, or poor or working class. It's just, we're just, don't worry. It's just about the wealthy. We're just going after. So it's, there's a little bit of a class warfare angle, but if you know anything about history and policy and government and policy is it's that, uh, limited policies once instituted tend to become generalized. And what started off as applying to one small group eventually applies to everybody. And that's and, that, and whether or not that's always um, part of the plan, and it's just, and we're looking at deception, or whether or not it's just the natural evolution of of policy. You know, we can debate that, but but that's the trend. Is that you want, it's like you get this camel's nose under the tent effect, and once you give them an inch, yeah, even if you say, "Oh, this this is all you get," you know, this is this is as far as we go. Inevitably, it it's going to grow, and it's going to and it's going to evolve into being uh, a policy that affects everybody including the middle class, the poor, yep. and, you know. Well, and, and who has the uh, resources to find loopholes or pay their way or lobby their way out of it? Not the middle class, not right. the lower class, right? So once this does take effect for everyone, people, people in the 1% are, are, they'll walk right away, right? Because first of all, now there's so many people that the, the lens is under, so it's not just on them and it's, that's i mean i think historically we we can probably pull a few instances of where that's happened i don't know any off the top of my head but i mean that's how we got here so it's had, right. had to have happened for sure well what's the uh, where's this all going i guess the we can probably assume that cbdc's are coming 
I guess the question is, is what will be, how will they be accepted? Will, will they be adopted? Will, will they be ignored? Right. What is the, uh, what will be the reaction to that? All right. Let's take a vote. Raise your hand. Well, say aye if you plan to ignore them. Aye. 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 Okay, cool. 100% of people are going to ignore them. Our study says. You yeah, know, there might be some uh, selection bias on that. It's, 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 it's fun. It's funny for people to come out and say, oh, we're only going to use this uh, for, for good purpose. But that's look at the Stanford uh, prison experiment. Look, you know, there's a reason why there's the uh, saying absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It, um, it, 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 it gives perverse incentives. I mean, we already have examples now where there are political dissenters. There are people coming from countries where the governments uh, are, are corrupt and, we can't uh, imagine a fairy tale world where all of these issues are wiped away. Uh, the reality is that's why it's better for everyone to have a robust, secure, decentralized network, a monetary system that isn't contingent upon a few powerful people in control at some point in time. Sure, maybe today the people say we're only using it for the 1%. Maybe the next administration that comes in says we're using it for the opposing party. That happens in countries all the right. time where if you're just a member of the opposing party, your assets and your bank accounts are at risk. So well, I think we're moving, we're moving to that here. I mean, I, I don't think we're there yet, but we're moving to a point in our on our politics where the, the divide between the left and the right is getting so rancorous that we can't even agree on on an election outcome. We can't agree on on a lot of things like how, how to, how to, I mean, we've always had disagreements, but I feel like the, some of the things you're talking about, Lucas, about other nations and the political culture, not being one that has a, a lot of reverence for democracy and how one government can come into power and essentially just declare its political enemies to be criminals and how there's not a robust, you know, rule of law there. I feel like we're on the kind of beyond on a, on a slide towards that kind of an outcome ourselves. And if that's the case, you know, if, if, if democracy and rule and the rule of law is crumbling and if, you know, uh, partisanship and tribalism is on the rise, then you definitely don't want to forge any tools that have social totalitarian implications. Right. Wouldn't that be wouldn't you want to go the opposite and decentralize kind of unload the gun? Right. You said it. I, I don't disagree with you, but you said it for the record. <laughs> uh, Here's one more thought, though, that's it's a. Uh, it's not privacy related, but it's it's on this on this topics of, of um, what this means for monetary policy. Uh, this is something I wanted to get out there. And I know we I, we skipped over it to other issues, but I'd like to just circle back around and just say one of the arguments against um, private money, like whether it's stable coins or or even cryptocurrency is that, well, not so much cryptocurrency. Let's just stick with stable coins. One of the arguments against stable coins is that they rep represent this new threat to, to the Federal Reserve conducting monetary policy, right? So this is this sphere of the economy where there's money, money and savings and loans, and the, and the Federal Reserve's monetary policy allegedly is not piercing into that, right? So it's like a it's like this island of chaos where the Fed can't control things, and ooh, that's you know bad. But the um, but that's really kind of dumb because. In, it's well known in international economics that any country that pegs its exchange rate to the U.S. dollar is essentially surrendering its domestic monetary policy to the United States and importing the U.S. monetary policy because that's what a peg is. You know, if you peg uh, your your currency one to one to the dollar, whatever dollar changes are experienced 
also one to one impact your dollar, your your currency because it's a peg. There's a peg there, and so that's just a common thing that we've understood in economics for a long time. And so the same logic applies to stable to stable coins, which are also pegged to the dollar. So this idea that that stable coins are this world where fe- the Federal Reserve's monetary policy doesn't doesn't have a reach is wrong. Anything that affects the U.S. dollar also affects the things that are pegged to it. And so that, and I just wanted to make that clear is that there's not a uh, a market failure in the sense that monetary policy can no longer be uh, um, effective because it's it's a peg. Yeah, it's it's essentially um, it's, a, it's a synthetic version of the U.S. dollar, right? right. Where one yep. side, the U.S. dollar, anything that happens on on the U.S. government side or U.S. monetary side, I should say, mm-hmm. um, that that affects everyone who's pegged to it or, or using exactly. that synthetic version. But it can't not the other way doesn't work, right? Sure, that person could leave, and you're back to the the starting point of when that company or that country joined your union but it doesn't negatively affect the policy at all. So it's really one-sided. It's extremely right. one-sided. It amplifies it, I guess you could yes. say. Yep. I think he even used that. Yeah. Waller even uses that term. He says that pegs to the dollar actually amplify U.S. policy actions. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, and I think that there's a whole, I mean, th- these articles are really rich and, and th- we could sit here all day and p- p- pick out some, some gems to talk about, but I think we found some of the big ones. Yeah. Uh, also, I, I would like to mention, um, if, if we look at monetary history, we look at the history of, of world governments and, and it's replete with fraud. It's replete with examples of corruption. Um, I mean, look yeah. at our own banking industry. Look at the Panama Papers, which exposed uh, institutional um, um, misdeeds and mal- you know, malfeasance going on. Look at the Pandora Papers, which we just talked about, which yep. is another major exposition of the corruption in, in financial systems that already are are highly centralized and 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 give power uh, to a few, and we see the corruption. So the idea that well, every doubling down. If we have the ultimate power, then right everything that everything's going to be okay. That to me is is the most ultimate um, conspiracy theory. To to believe that it goes is is goes against what people have suffered through by, by giving power to print money to a few people historically. So I, yes, um, all you need to do is look at that picture of the, in Snowden's article of, of the Roman money and over the years, how a coin started off looking a, a full circle. And then over the you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, they, they were just little chips with you know, chunk, huge hunks ripped out of these sides. They were clipped or shaved. And essentially, that's a the fraud that you're talking about because the metal is melted down, and then people. But the fraud, the fraud comes from the fact that people are forced to accept the shaved coins as at par value with with the old one that was full, right? That was the fraud. And in the funny thing, well, not funny. The sad thing is, is that the people who didn't make that recognition didn't treat them as equal. Those people were were forced to, and if they didn't go with it, they were hung, beheaded, killed. And this is some. This is news to and me. That, I mean, I, and that actually happens today. Actually, today operates on the exact same principles. If you look at dollar bills, 
paper money, uh, Federal Reserve notes, it states this note is tender, is legal tender for all debts, public right. and private. And there have been people who have tried opening up stores and said, I'm not going to accept that worthless paper. I'm accepting gold and silver. And those people were thrown in jail and had their assets taken from them. So make no mistake about it that um, that the mon monetary the current system, system is the, the current same. system operates on the exact same principle. In fact, just like you see that coin uh, being shaved and shaved and diluted and, and diluted, People know, as a matter of fact, that the fiat currency, the U.S. dollar, as they print and print and print and print trillions and trillions, they devalue the holdings of, of everyone else who, you know, right. their coin is being shaved, so to speak. And if someone comes out and says, I don't want to use that printing money thing that you're doing, I, I, I would rather use this that everyone values and accepts they will they being people who work for the uh those who get paid by the money printing machine will come and they will arrest you and put you in a prison that's paid for by the money printing machine and everyone in that prison will keep you in because they're all paid by the money printing machine right. so so um that's that's what's so beautiful about blockchain and crypto in this technology it, it's the it's the first time in in really centuries hundreds, thousands that people have uh, the potential to liberate humanity from, from uh, that system, from that system. Right. We can yeah. literally have um, a, a, a unit of account, a money, a monetary system that is transparent and is built on trust and is immutable. And, and then it goes without saying like all fantastic earth shattering innovations, there's always a, a Luddite class that sees their interests bound up in the legacy system that's being displaced. And they do what they can to keep the innovation from spreading. And here we are. That's that's what we're dealing with, with talking of talk of regulation or China banning blockchain or Bitcoin or, you know, stable coins or, or uh, wildcat banking notes. You know, all these all these narratives are really political narratives on, a, on the part of a class of people who sees their their income and their life's work tied up in a system that's slowly being replaced. And nobody wants to see that happen. Right. It's not good. On, it's hard on the ego, not to mention, you know, just your your financial interests as a as an economist or a Fed governor or an IRS agent or whatever. Your, your, your material interests are bound up with those institutions. So it's um, it's no wonder why they would come out swinging. I think we've put our put our finger on the on the point is that uh, money is not this altruistic public good that the state produces just for your own good. So so that people have. Uh, financial liquidity so that commerce can work. It's, it's more, it is that, but it's more than that. It's also a tool of power and a tool of re of control. And it's about resources and the, it's about the, the, the political question who has the power and who's going to get the resources and who's going to pay the cost. And it's, and it's having control over that system of distributing rewards and costs. That is, that is the heart of politics. And when you give that up, that would that would that's transformation. It's transformative for the culture, for politics, for for everything, for society at large. And it's it's not a transformation that these that the old guard in in charge of the legacy institutions have any desire to see happen. Well, guys, I think like you said, Ryan, we put our finger on the pulse here. Uh, you know, following what Snowden uh, you know wrote and what Waller has, has, has spoke, and I, I think. This is a lot to think about. I 
don't even think we've gotten into some of the intricacies of how Orwellian this could be or uh, other implications beside that. But this is certainly, I think, a really good Eagles view of of this situation and how this is not going to be a, a positive outcome for a majority of people uh, globally or within the United States specifically, if we're talking about the central bank digital currency for the U.S. We have China to look to. Uh, we can look at their digital yuan. What has it done for, obviously, that is a totally different regime and a totally different government, but we can still see the the outcomes and determine for ourselves, is, is that a type of currency we want to use? Would we prefer private currencies like cryptocurrencies, DeFi, tools instead of traditional banks that now operate on this central bank digital currency. The the choice may or may not come down to us. I hope it does come down to us, but that's to be, you know, that is to be seen. And if it's, if it's not, just remember that this is the, probably the only point in human history where we as individuals have equal financial mobility, where I can get up with my hardware wallet and move to Portugal tomorrow. And if I don't have a bank account, no, no one is stopping me monetarily at all. That money is not location-based. Uh, that Bitcoin is not location-based. So do remember that. And um, yeah, guys, do you have any anything to, to leave the audience on? Um, well, um, I think you, you've had a good, you had a good summary about the, uh, the, the ability to vote with your feet and to take your resources with you and the, the, how blockchain is transformative in that way. And that's a good point. Uh, the more that politics doesn't uh, give you the kind of society that you want, it's, you know, we have, we, we live in an interconnected world and the ability to just up and leave is there in, in a way that it hasn't in the past. And um, I think that'll help nudge the, uh, the governments that, that are, that see people leaving, it'll nudge them towards, you know, a, maybe a more enlightened policy. And I, that's my hope, but I, I hope that we don't have to test that theory and we can just tolerate a private monetary system existing side by side with public and that the, that the two worlds can kind of coexist and we don't have to live out any kind of dystopian nightmare. That's my, that's my hunch or my hope rather. And, uh, but if not, yeah, I'm going to join you, Devin, and uh, being an expat. Well, but, I'm uh, going to, uh, I'm going to Republic of Georgia. Where are you going? Um, I haven't thought about it yet, but somewhere, somewhere where there's a, you know, a beach maybe. Okay. I like All right. Portugal. Hey, do you surf? I don't know, okay. but I can, I could learn. There you go. I'd, uh, I'd be willing to learn. Yeah. Well, Lucas, where, where are you going? I said, I say knowledge is power when it comes to all this stuff. And, and it's a blessing to, to be a part of this. We're all in this together, right? And we're all held captive to the past and, until we relieve ourselves of ignorance and, and, we, and we learn and we, we change our beliefs through new knowledge and understanding. And I, I have a very optimistic viewpoint um, that as because I, I know in my own lifetime, I've, I've come a long way from, from how I was raised and what I understood and how much information I'm exposed to and seeing blockchain and the internet and, and how much more rapid information continues to disseminate and allowing people to, to compare previous ideologies and, and new concepts. I'm bullish. I'm optimistic in the long run uh, when it comes to the decision makings. And that, but of course, that's why 
I'm, I'm glad to be a part of the discussion with you guys and to to learn and to help share that knowledge as, as it comes through. So uh, as far as where I'm going to be, uh, wherever I am, I feel like I, I'm blessed and grateful and I feel free to be me. <laughs> Well, but Portugal today. sounds nice. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much uh, again. Uh, as always, it's a it's a pleasure and a privilege, and I really look forward to speaking with you guys next week. Thanks, Devin. See you next time. Thank you, brother. <laughs>